will be in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46 this morning. And the title of the message this morning is Communion with Christ. Matthew 25, and verses 31 to 46. Please follow along as I read in the Word of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right side, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, And you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not... Do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thus says the Word of God. May God bless the reading of His Word among His people. Would you pray with me? To hear the words of Christ this morning, Lord, it causes a healthy check in our spirit. For any of us reading with spirit-filled eyes this morning, probably have a check of trembling in our hearts to hear such conclusive words of Christ. For we know what it was to be a goat, and now we're so undeservedly called a sheep. And we know some who have not yet become sheep, and the finality of these statements cause us heartache and burden. But Lord, our eyes are set this morning on the throne of which Jesus will sit on that day. And we behold you in your righteousness and your holiness. We behold your holy word 
And we ask that you would make us a holy people. Lord, take your word and shape and fashion us in your likeness. Your holy word. We're sick of sin. We're tired of self-glory. So change us, Lord. Let us behold this one who with joy welcomes us into the inheritance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 24 and 25 typically are seen as discourses of the last things, and we've spent several weeks talking about end times and future occurrences, acts of God in the day of the Lord. But when you come to Matthew 25, and remember, we began Matthew 25, or Matthew did, it with the parable of the ten virgins awaiting the bridegroom. Five didn't have oil, and were not welcome into the wedding feast when it began. And then the talents, and the, the master went away and left, left his investments with three servants, two of which were faithful and one who was not. Remember, this is how we went into Matthew 25. When we come into Matthew 25, we realize that Jesus is talking about how to live before the last things. Yes, there is an arrival that we've found at least now three times mentioned in Matthew 25 and in Matthew 24 was all sorts of birth pangs and then, and then actual events of the deliverance of God's people and the judgment of the wicked. This has all been about last things, but in Matthew 25, the tone turns just a little bit in light of the last days, how are we to live? And let me ask you that question. What answer comes to your mind? In light of Jesus' return, how are you to live? But let's tweak it a little bit and say, in light of Jesus' return, how are you living? And I could tell you that in preparing for this message and dwelling on this passage for some time now, I have become convicted by this passage. But it is ours to come together in this passage and see what does the Lord have for us this morning? Think about the movies and stories that you've been entertained by through the years. The old black and white sci-fi movies and, and then the 80s with the, some of the apocalyptic movies about the end of the world. When people think about the end of the world, how do they portray it? Think about how the movies portray it and think about how generally culture portrays the end of the world. Usually, by almost, usually they portray it by the almost extinction of mankind, right? There's always some sort of hero or heroine and is trying to save, save the entire human race. It's almost total extinction of mankind and it's usually by what? By, sometimes by pollution, right? By the way in which the world has, has grown, polluted the ozone and the water and everything, whether even by material things or even by the wickedness of man's own heart, pollution of the heart, not only pollution of the material, but also maybe the world is coming to an end because man has become so bad, you know, and there's just some good people willing to rescue and start over. But it's interesting, and it's also you know, typical and very telling, that no sci-fi movie, at least that I've watched, um, depicts the arrival of a righteous judge. The world can't imagine the end of humanity, or the end of the age, coming to the point where a righteous judge arrives. And here we see in this passage, Jesus comes with his angels and he sits on a glorious throne with all the nations around him, with all the nations before him. 
Now, we always like to see, has, has Matthew talked about some of these topics already? Has he set the scene for us? Has he prepared us for this conversation that he's recording for us diligently in Matthew 25? Turn with me back in Matthew chapter 19. In your, and this is somewhat fresh in your thinking because it's kind of, it has been leading into Jesus' preparation of the disciples of his departure. And in Matthew chapter 19, the disciples, in verse 27, Peter says in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have then? Jesus said to them in verse 28, Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But this seems, by the way, this judging of the 12 tribes of Israel and this, this future blessing of, G, of Jesus, the Son of Man, sitting on the glorious throne, it seems to be after his coming of, that's found in Matthew 25. It's when peace has already been established, and truly it is. But until that time comes, until the Son of Man comes and sits on this glorious throne, how do we wait for this to end? How do we wait for the ending? This comes back to the question we had this asked a few moments ago. How are you waiting? How are you waiting until the end? In Matthew 24, and, and you're welcome to scan down through the, the, um, the chapter with me, because there's actually been several different parts of Christ's counsel to share with us how we are to wait. For example, in verse 15, we're to wait with a watchful eye. Matthew 24:15, wait with a watchful eye. In verse 26, wait with the discernment of what is true. For there will be many deceivers among you, and there will be many who are claiming uh, false claims, but watch and wait with discernment. So wait with a watchful eye, wait with discernment, and then wait with a sober mind. In verses 37 to 40, be ready, be ready for his return. Wait with a sober mind. And in verse 45, wait like a faithful and wise servant. Wait with a faithful spirit. Wait with wisdom. Serve God with faithfulness and wisdom. How are you doing on these things, by the way, so far? How are you doing on your waiting? And then similar themes are illustrated, as we had alluded to, um, by the parable of the ten virgins with the oil lamps and then the talents in Matthew 25. Similar themes are illustrated. But now Jesus is going to tell us something different about how to wait. So not just with a watchful eye, not with discernment, not just with discernment and sober-mindedness and readiness and faithfulness and wisdom, but now in, in chapter 25, and now in this passage here, Jesus is going to tell us something different about waiting. And notice that there's not a description of readiness. There is a finality of condition. When Jesus comes, he's not speaking of those who are busy doing the wrong thing. But now we see the time is up. When Jesus comes now, they are not just waiting. Time is up. The microwave vapor has gone off. That annoying thing that tells you there's no more time left. Every, the alarm clock has gone off. There's just nothing left to do. Jesus has come. There's no more waiting. We see the time is up. And there's no snooze button. 
or add 30 seconds. The time is up. There's nothing left to do. Life is done. So now, when Jesus comes, in this passage, you're either a sheep or you're a goat. And so, one of the questions, by the way, this morning that you need to be asking yourself, and really this passage asks you to ask yourself, is, is which one are you? Which one are you? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Well, let's look into this and try to understand the nature of Christ's admonition here. It's critical that we get some clarity with this passage because this passage has been misunderstood and it's been, been manipulated even within Christendom to justify all kinds of things, but especially self-righteous, meritorious salvation. So number one, we're going to look at the first truth this morning, and if you have bulletin, you're welcome to follow along with some of the truths that we've included there. But number one, wait with love for the church. Wait with love for the church. We know from all across the scriptures that God is a God of compassion and his people reflect his mercy towards those around them in need. For example, one of the most ready parables and one of the most ready teachings of Christ that comes to our mind when, it, when we think about having compassion on others is the parable of the good what? Samaritan. And in there we find someone who seems unlovable and so needy laying alongside the road and someone who's from an entirely different culture and background and someone, a stranger, pouring oil into their wounds and then paying their way into this, this place of respite. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. All through Scripture we have an ethos or an ethic of, of compassion towards other people, whether or not they belong to the house of God, whether or not we know them, whether or not they're of the same tribe as us, whether or not the same skin color, the same economic status, the socio-cultural realm, doesn't matter. All throughout Scripture we find kindness and mercy extended, first of all, from God towards aliens, strangers, rebels, and enemies like us. All throughout Scripture it is, 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 is a scene. But is caring for the poor what Christ has in mind here? Notice the needs of the person that is exhibited here in Matthew 25. Notice that they are a person who, we begin to to find out that there are some who are hungry. And notice there are some who are thirsty. And notice there are some who are like a stranger, the unknown. Notice there are some who are cold in the winter or or hot in the summer and they are not able to shelter themselves even with the most basic necessity of clothing. Notice that there are some who are sick and notice there are some who are entrapped in prison, maybe even unrighteously so. Notice that this is the type of people Jesus is referring to. And at first glance, this looks like the way that someone would enter into the kingdom of God is to do these things, to give food to the hungry, to give water to the thirsty, to welcome the stranger, to clothe that person who's naked, to, to come and visit and try to bring some sort of relief to the sick, to bring encouragement to the one in prison. At first glance, it looks like that the way to enter the kingdom of God is to do these things, to give water, clothing, whatever, in order to earn the kingdom. But the passage sits here and it asks, it asks this question, If you can do these things, then why do we have the next chapter in our Bible? If we can do these things to inherit eternal life, then why is Jesus going to lay down his life for the sheep? 
If we can do these things to inherit or to please God in such a way that we earn our salvation, why is Jesus going to be crucified for our sins? And this passage sits right up against the rest of our Bible and the rest of the story of redemption. But sadly, many people will come to this passage as a, a type of saying, this is how I enter into eternal life. I do good things. And many a good person, many a well-meaning person, is motivated by this passage to serve others in need. And even do so, by the way, in a way in which they think they're serving the Lord. But where is Matthew going with this narrative? By the way, Matthew is a writer and the Spirit of God is the true author. And the Spirit of God is putting this passage in our way to the cross. And you stumble over this passage as you come to the Word of God with an open heart trying to discover how do I inherit eternal life And you come to this part of the Bible and you realize that you can't earn salvation. And this passage makes it very clear. We're going to keep keep, uh, opening it up for us this morning. See if the Spirit of God will open it up for us. Jesus has been using words to describe his necessary redemption for sinful men like you and I all throughout Matthew. Jesus has made it very clear that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And knowing that we are sinners, how can He be justified in allowing us to enter into the kingdom? Is there enough water to give away to a thirsty person to cleanse your soul from the sins in all the world? Could you empty the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean and all the great lakes in the world and cleanse your heart from your sins so that you could be worthy to enter into eternal life? Could you empty it into a cup and feed every thirsty person? And the answer is no. It cannot be. Because Jesus has said that He will need to be a ransom for the unrighteous. Jesus will teach about the importance of righteousness being reckoned through his death, his burial, and resurrection. Jesus will speak many times throughout the book of Matthew as he compels the Pharisees to drop their self righteousness, to shed their pride, and rely wholly upon him. And he will tell them if they will only believe upon him for their righteousness, they will inherit eternal life. So it isn't about a cup of water and it isn't about clothing and it isn't about visiting the sick or the prisoner. There's a moral dilemma. Jesus is showing us here that we wait for Christ in such a way that we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ without even thinking much about it. Look in verse number 40. The king answers, verse number 39, When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? When did we see you as a stranger? When did we give you a drink? And Jesus says, the king will say, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
wait a minute, who is Jesus' brothers? Because it sounds like they were the ones who are thirsty. They were the ones without clothing. They were the ones in prison. They were the ones who were sick, right? So Jesus is saying, the least of these, my brothers. So who are Jesus' brothers? So let's look in Matthew and see if Matthew has shown us anything about the brothers of Jesus. So be ready to turn to a couple passages. First, turn to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, we hear this language used by Christ before. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And you know this, that Jesus is having a little mental lapse of who his family is. But he's actually using it as a rhetorical question because we know the answer is actually greater than that which was found in his own household. Who is my brother and who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus has been laying out a family description of an entirely different relationship. Look then in Matthew 23, not too far from the pages you're on right now. Matthew 23. Jesus has been speaking all along, so this isn't a new topic he's bringing up in Matthew 25 about doing this to the least of my brothers. Matthew 23 and verse number 8. And he's talking about don't be like a, like a, like a Gentile or a Pharisee who loves the place of honor. And he says... Um, they love the place of honor, verse 6, Matthew 23, 6, they love the place of honor and feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace that are called by the rabbi and by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one another, and you are all brothers. You are all brothers. And then actually later on, and we haven't actually done this too much um, in our studies through Matthew, but we're going to look at Matthew 28. So turn to the last chapter of Matthew. Matthew 28. And Jesus has risen. And Mary went to see sees them at the tomb. And they, they have this experience of, of the angel. And in Matthew 28, verse 8, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell, say it out loud, my brothers, to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. My brothers. Oh, we could dwell on that. I wish I could even just go on a tangent on that. But we need to stay on this passage. But, but brother, sister, you, you are a brother of Christ in, in this way. Jesus in Matthew 25 is not talking about giving a cup of water to everyone in the world who is thirsty. We see that as an ethic, a Christian ethic, all throughout Scripture, so it is not excluding kindness and mercy. But in this passage, there's a more narrow focus here. What defines a sheep And what defines a goat is how the brothers are treated. 
So it's not about everyone in the world who is broken. It's about brothers in Christ who are needy. And in this passage, and now you can come back to Matthew 25, Jesus identifies with his church. Verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you remember the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? And he was persecuting the church. And he was whipping and driving and, and persecuting and executing Christians. He was a deadly force against the church. And Jesus stops him on the road to Damascus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul had never been around Christ that we know of. He was not part of the crucifixion. He's not part of the, the trials. He had never been around Christ. But Jesus says, why do you persecute me? Jesus identifies with his church. Both the sheep and the goats, by the way, in Matthew 25, are surprised by what Jesus says. Notice that they both have questions. When did we? When did we? This conversation of the judge before the sheep and the goats is, is met with great surprise. They're not, they are not surprised, by the way, of the outcome. They're surprised by the reason that Jesus gives. You see, the goats aren't not doing these things because they have something against Jesus. They're not trying to offend Jesus. And many people in this world are not seemingly outwardly or even inwardly driven by a hatred for Jesus. There are many believers who are not, or many unbelievers who are not actively pressing against Jesus. They're not doing something to destroy Jesus or, do, do, you know, actively his church. But the surprise in this passage is based on the fact that Jesus is identified with his people. And the surprise is that it had anything to do with Jesus personally in the first place. That's the surprise. When did we do this to you is the question that both the sheep and the goats ask. When, when was it ever about you? And Jesus simply responds with what we do towards brothers, we do towards him. We are waiting for the Lord in such a way that we are so transformed that we serve brothers in Christ without even thinking about it. It's part of our nature. We are brothers. Do you ever think much about serving your family? You just do it. It's second nature because they're your family. So in a, in a greater way, in the body of Christ, we serve one another because we've been changed. We don't even, we don't even think about the motivation. We don't sit down to calculate you know, the deservedness of our brother or sister. We, we are so transformed by the love of Christ, so drawn into the family of God, that we serve our brother and sister. Why? Because they're our brother and they are our sister. And Jesus says they, that He is them. And serving them, you serve Him. And this is huge when it comes to the church. If we are more concerned with how the church cares for us, then we might 
look more like goats. But if we are consumed with how we can serve others in the church, brothers and sisters, then we are more like the sheep. And Jesus is saying, I'm I'm about ready to leave, but here's what I want you to do until I return. There's fruit, but there's been a root all along. So sheep, serve sheep. The second truth in this passage we find is that when Jesus comes, you will already be judged. When Jesus comes, you will already be judged. Would you turn with me to John chapter 12? In the similar context of leading up to Christ's crucifixion, John carries some of the conversation over there in his book. And in John chapter 12, verse 41 to 50, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John 12, 42. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And so Jesus says that the the person who has come to the judgment day, they have already shown who they are. They are already judged. They're already a goat or a sheep. Their life has already demonstrated the evidence of who they are. They didn't become a sheep or become a goat on that last day. They had already lived out the characterizations and the characteristics of the sheep or of the goat. And so the sheep have been giving water to sheep all along. The sheep have been given water to the brothers. Brothers have been giving clothing to brothers. Brothers have been visiting brothers in prison. But the goats have not. The goats didn't care for the church. The goats didn't care for Christians. And the goats didn't care for brothers because they weren't their brothers. So on the last day, they're goats. They already were goats. But on the last day, there's no time to change anymore. They have already been judged. The Apostles' Creed, we said last Sunday in our service, He shall come to judge the living and the dead. And John says, and according to John chapter 12, John says this is the last thing that Jesus says in public. Now, when we talk about judgment and we talk about being judged, sometimes there's a lot of fear in there. And I could tell you, and maybe you have had this experience too, that I, I've been in a courtroom where someone's life was at stake, not in a death sentence, but in, in some sort of prison sentence, and I've felt the weight of the judgment bar. 
And it's, it's a sobering thing to be in a courtroom. But do you know that it is a far more scary thing and a far more fearful thing when you really think about it? If you were in a courtroom and the judgment, the judge's seat was empty, we really do want to judge. We really do want to judge. If we went into eternity having the matters of our souls settled, if we go into eternity without the matters of our soul settled, then we go into a very insecure eternity as believers. As unbelievers, that is the goats, they go into a godless eternity of punishment. If they were to go without a judge, if they were to enter into eternity without justification for anything, that might not sound like a very big deal because we just say, well, they deserved it anyways. And it might not even sound like a relief that they would have some sort of formal judgment. But do you know that if, if unbelievers go into a godless eternity of punishment without justification, it speaks to a fault with God. That God can throw people into hell without a just cause. It makes hell unjust. And it also makes heaven unjust too. Do you hear that? Just as when a judge in a courtroom puts his gavel down and whatever he has just determined sets the innocent free or locks up the guilty and either there's relief or despair, so too in the judgment of Christ on that last day, there is relief and finality for some and there is despair eternally for the others. We want to see someone at that judgment bar. There's nothing more confusing. There's nothing more disheartening than to be in a courtroom where there's no judge. To be in a courtroom where the seat is empty. The eternal inheritance at the right hand of Christ was prepared for the sheep before the foundation of the world. Is prepared for them before the foundation of the world. It was not dependent upon their works. Many skip over this fact. That the eternal inheritance was prepared before the foundation of the world. This is found in verse number 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, if this was prepared for them before the foundation of the world, we also recognize then that it never was their good works that made them inherited in the first place either, right? So not only does the cross eliminate any argument of this passage of works-based righteousness, works-based salvation, but it also demonstrates God's eternal plan to redeem those who He will call. And He will prepare for them before they even do the first thing good, an inheritance of an eternal kingdom. 
You see, the good works in this passage are not the cause of their salvation. They are the fruit of it. Goats can do good things, but they have the wrong root. They don't do it out of an overflow from their transformed life in Christ. They can't do it from the heart of Christ. They may do it because they think they love Christ, or they love His church, or they love God's people, or they love even serving and being meaningful. But it is not Jesus Christ doing it through them, and that's the point of this passage. We can say that the term sheep is often referred to as the people of God throughout the scriptures. References Isaiah 53, 6 and Jeremiah 23, 1 and John 10. In Israel, many herds included both sheep and goats. It wasn't unheard of to think of sheep and goats together. But the shepherd would divide the sheep and goats at the end of the day. You see, goats are known and... and by the way, I, when I married Jennifer, one of the conditions was that I also had to take her goat. She had a goat. The oldest goat in the world lived forever. Still alive today in some field, I think. The goats, at the end of the day, are divided out because goats live differently. The goats are playful and fun, but they're also harmful and destructive. And you can always tell where a goat has been because it leaves a path of destruction behind him. The book of Daniel uses the figure of a goat for the worldly power that is a destructive force in Daniel 8. But sheep, sheep only eat grass. But goats will try to chew on whatever they can. Goats need to be tied up at night. Otherwise, they will just, around a flock, they will just keep the flock moving, add stress, divide, sometimes even, in some ways, destroy. Goats dominate the sheep if they can. They play tricks and they try to elude. But sheep, when they lose their way, they'll listen to the voice of the shepherd. And usually with a gesture, a movement of the shepherd, the sheep will come together and form a flock and they'll follow the shepherd. Goats don't do that. So we understand why God would call his people sheep. And perhaps some of why he would call the wicked goats. And so in this passage we find two concluding emphasis in this parable. And one is an emphasis of separation, of division, even of conclusion. And all their lives, the goats have told Jesus to leave them alone. And on the last day, Jesus says, you can have your wish. If you're listening to this message and, and you're living a life in such a way where you are saying, God, leave me alone. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Depart from me. When Jesus comes and looks you in the eyes, those will be the last words you hear from him. There's a separation. In all the lives, the goats have told Jesus to depart from them, to keep his distance. 
He wouldn't be their shepherd. And now, Jesus says it to you. There's a separation. But we also notice that there's a communion. The sheep, the brothers, their care for one another has flowed from the love of Christ for his people. They hadn't thought a lot about it. They weren't trying to store it up as some sort of way to impress God. They just loved the family of God because they were brothers. And as they had already experienced communion with one another in such tender mercies, so now they will enter into eternal communion with one another and with Jesus Christ. Not only had they experienced all along, the brothers, not only had they experienced all along communion with one another, giving a cup of water to one another, and food, visiting each other in the sick and prison, they had already experienced communion with one another. But realize this, they had already also experienced communion with Jesus Christ. If you dwell with your brothers in love, you're dwelling with Christ in love. Jesus doesn't say that he is separated from his church. Jesus says, you are my church. I am in you. I am of you. I am within. All along, the cup, the clothing, the food, the visits, all along, the brothers were serving Jesus. All along. Christ is both with and in his disciples, his people. And this might be hard to do. Because sometimes we have a hard time serving one another. For whatever personal reasons, whether it's laziness or apathy or indifference. Maybe it's even due to bias or other things. Or maybe it's due to lack of opportunity or lack of abilities or lack of resources and all these things All of them pile up. The bottom line is, if you're looking for a meaningful way to wait for Jesus, and you recognize from this passage it's more than just sober thinking and watchful eyes and faithfulness and wisdom, but it's also If you're waiting for Jesus to come, you serve him today. You serve him today. You see, the goats, they knew nothing of communion. But the sheep love it. Let's pray.